What is the rarest shot in golf? The rarest shot in golf. And <laughs> what vegetable is actually an immature flower harvested <laughs> on purpose? prematurely. Have I called you that? (laughs) Answers to those and other questions coming up on this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. No, I don't think you ever did call me an immature flower, Marsha. No. <laughs> did I ever call you that, an immature flower? A snowflake, maybe, but not an immature That's flower. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> so what vegetable is actually an immature flower that's harvested prematurely on purpose? <laughs> I'll give you a clue. This is not one of your favorite foods. Oh, is it broccoli? That's what it uh, is. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw this the other day on Britannica.com. Broccoli is an immature flower that is harvested before it blooms. Now, if you leave it unharvested, each green bud typically produces four yellow petals. How about that? But for eating purposes, it's harvested before it gets to the flower stage. Okay. I didn't know that. I would have guessed cauliflower because it's little florets. It kind of looks like a flower a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, it's... uh, It's broccoli. It's actually an immature flower. So you could call somebody that. You immature flower. You're talking in the... (laughs) You're calling them a broccoli. uh, Who is it? Uh, George Bush. Yes. Didn't like broccoli. Not going to eat it. No way. No way. (laughs) That's it. Very good, Bobby. All right. So, what do you think is the rarest shot in golf? The rarest shot in golf. I always assumed it was, well, a hole-in-one. That's true. In a matter of speaking, it is. But this shot is called the condor, also known as a triple eagle. That sounds dangerous. (laughs) Threatening. And it means getting your ball in the hole on a very, very long fairway in one or two strokes. Okay. For perspective, Bob, the odds of getting a hole-in-one, usually on a par three, are 12,000 to one. Yeah. So you're right, it's rare. So what's the chance of this? Six million to one. Oh, my goodness. That is difficult. Yeah, it's usually on a par five or more. Anyway, you notice how the birds get bigger the harder the shot? Birdie, eagle, albatross, that's a double eagle, and then the condor is a triple eagle. Speaking of albatross, (laughs) I have a question on that coming up. (laughs) Okay, I can't wait. Hey, Marsha, we know that redwood trees can reach towering heights, but how tall is the world's tallest pine tree, and where is it? I'll say Montana, and then I'll say (laughs) 200 feet. Well, it's more than that, actually, and it's in the state of Oregon. It's a ponderosa pine. That's the most common pine species in North America. They're easy to spot in the wild because they have orange-colored bark. It makes them stand out. Oh, really? But one really stands out in the Rogue River Siskiyou National Forest in Oregon. It's a nickname phalanx, spelled P-H-A-L-A-N-X. That's the term used for strength, as in bone or finger, Mm -hmm. phalanx. Okay. And it is as tall as a 30-story building. It is 298 feet tall. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Now, that's in good company because it's surrounded by other ponderosa pines that are also over 250 feet tall. The ponderosa pine. A ponderosa pine, the phalanx Uh, is the name of it. All right. And it's the tallest pine in the world. 
Bob, how do dolphins protect themselves while asleep? How do they protect themselves while asleep? Uh-huh. Uh, they have alarm systems. Um, let's see. <laughs> Little time. Or yeah, they, they got have their a, phone. They have phones. <laughs> uh, I don't know. What do they do? They have something known as unihemispheric slow-wave sleep. Wow. In which only half their brain sleeps at a time, while the other half remains awake at a low level of alertness. I'm no kidding. Yeah. Dolphins typically float motionless or swim near the water's surface when in this state. And while people and dolphins have very different slumbering habits, this is interesting, Dolphins get four hours of sleep from each side of their brain in a 24-hour period, so they get the typical eight hours of shut-eye that human beings get. Okay, okay. <laughs> but they do it twice. They do it in two different shifts. Yeah, half of their brain at one time and the other half later. <laughs> Today, I think I'll start with this part of the brain. That's weird, isn't it? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, Marsha, I've got a nature question. How old is the oldest wild bird in the world? How old is the oldest? They even have a name for this bird. The old bird. She's an old bird, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the oldest wild bird in the world. Is How old do you think it is? It's still alive? Still alive. And, and they know this because it's been banded. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I was going to ask how Here's her name. Her name is Wisdom. She just became owl? a grandmother again. Is it an owl? No, not an owl. Is it a eagle? No, it's not an eagle. Uh, I don't know. Okay, it's an albatross. Oh, really? Yeah, an albatross, and she's been coming to Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge near the Battle of Midway National Memorial in the Pacific Ocean since the Eisenhower administration. Oh, my gosh. 71 years old. She still flies. She still looks amazingly beautiful from the pictures I've seen. Doesn't look like an old bird, so to speak. <laughs> she was first banded in 1956 when she laid an egg at Midway. And because female Lysen albatrosses don't generally breed before the age of five, that's when they determined, well, she must have been born about 1951. At least five. Now, the albatrosses return to Midway every year to lay eggs, and wisdom has been coming back again and again and again over the decades. This year, scientists knew that she'd become a grandmother again because they discovered a grand chick <laughs> under another banded offspring, one of Wisdom's children that was born in 2011. So they have banded birds. Three generations are alive and well in the spring of 2023 on Midway with Wisdom being 71, the oldest known wild bird in the world. All right. And one more on dolphins. Okay. How many stomachs do they have? Wow, I never thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> so they must have at least two. I'll say two, Marsh. Yeah, no, three. Three stomachs. <laughs> Why do they need three? Well, the stomach in front is primarily used to store the food. The main stomach is where the majority of digestion takes place, and the pyloric chamber completes digestion and regulates passage into the small intestine. Wow. Each one has a function. This streamlined process supports the bottlenose dolphin's average daily intake of 25 to 50 pounds of fish, squid, and crustaceans every wow. day. Wow, 25 to 50 pounds of, a dolphin eats every day? Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, of... Uh, Fish. And I thought dogs were expensive to keep. <laughs> no, we're not getting one, Bob. I want a dolphin. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right, Marcia, it's baseball season. It and is. Uh, back in 1910, President William Howard Taft became the first U.S. president to throw the first pitch on opening day of Major League Baseball. Since 1910, all but three U.S. presidents have thrown out the first ball to start the season. 
What presidents have not thrown a ball out to start the baseball the, season? The three presidents yes. that did not? They're all within your lifespan. Really? They're okay. all within the last 50 years. Okay, I'll say Donald Trump didn't. That's right. That's one. I'll say Joe Biden didn't. Joe Biden hasn't either. That's two. And One more president did not throw a ball out to Jim. start any of the baseball games during his presidency. Jimmy Carter. That's right. Jimmy <laughs> Carter. I haven't got time to throw out the ball. <laughs> what is it? So Jimmy Carter didn't do it. Donald Trump didn't do it. And Joe Biden hasn't done it. Okay. But every other president since 1910 has thrown out the ball, the first ball for Major League Baseball. Okay. What animal has the largest eyes? The animal with the largest eyes, I would think it would be the blue whale. Ah, no. Huge eyes. <laughs> that animal has huge eyes. But this one is colossal. Okay, a colossal animal with eyes. Mm -hmm. It's the colossal squid. Oh. The human eye, our eyes, Bob, measure about two-thirds of an inch across at birth before growing to full size of one inch by adulthood. That's amazing. That's all the bigger our eyes get. Yeah, one inch. An inch. Okay. By comparison, the eye of the 45-foot-long colossal squid has been measured at 11 inches in diameter. Whoa, that's a big eye. <laughs> that's about the size of an LP record. Yeah, 11 yeah. inches in yeah, diameter. Yeah. Wow. It's the largest such organ in the animal kingdom and is possibly the largest in history of recorded life. Jeez. Wow. 11 inches in diameter. That is a big eye. <laughs> Plus, your dad used to call you big eyes when you would order too much food in a restaurant. And couldn't eat it. Yes. yes big <laughs> you eyes. still have big eyes, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Marsha. What is the defense of Fort McHenry? This is a work of art that was done back in uh, 1814. What is the question? The defense of Fort McHenry. Yeah. What this is, is a poem you've recited your entire life. What is it also known as? Oh. Oh. The Star-Spangled Banner. Oh, really? Yeah, it was originally a poem called The Defense of Fort McHenry. Now, oh. who changed the name to the Star-Spangled Banner? Who? A music store. <laughs> Somebody who had to advertise their wares. A music store. Because Francis Scott Key published his poem, The Defense of Fort McHenry, with instructions that be sung to the melody of Anacreon in Heaven. That's the tune we sing to this day. It was a drinking song in England, okay? Uh-huh. The first public performance of the song was the Holiday Street Theater in Baltimore, October 19th, 1814. And a music store changed the title. They published the words and music under the title The Star-Spangled Banner, taking the lyric, Oh, say does that star-spangled banner wave. Something in the lyrics here that we can use better than Defense of Fort McHenry. Well, they, so they found it in the lyrics. Okay, well, that, that is smart because you're right. Who'd buy that one? Isn't uh, that interesting? All yeah. right, now, I said Anacreon. I said it's a drinking song. Uh-huh. It was a song from the British Gentlemen's Club the Anacreonic Society, and that was named after a Greek poet renowned for his drinking songs and odes to love. Okay. So that's where that comes from. We always hear a drinking song. We think of a kind of a lower class thing. Uh -huh. Oh, our Star Spangled Banner is just a drinking song. It was a drinking song of a high society class of gentlemen okay. in England. I remember that. Okay. All right, Bob. The human race once believed that giant human beings once roamed the earth instead of dinosaurs. Okay. When did that change? When did the dinosaurs roam the earth? <laughs> no. <laughs> or, or when people, did people think it was different? Yeah, when they found bones, they thought, my God, these are that huge. That was only about 200 years ago, I think, well, wasn't it? Ah, 
you're absolutely right. Yeah. 1820. Before that, nobody knew about dinosaurs. No, no. The birth of the United States dates back a little more than 245 years, but a lot has happened since then. One of the big paleontological updates, for example, is the discovery of dinosaurs. The first dino fossil was discovered in 1677, but they thought it was a really large human. <laughs> a large human? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and well, of course, they only found a portion of a... Yeah, but still, they thought that it belonged to some ancient race of giant humans. No kidding. And certainly, they had no concept of a dinosaur. And it wasn't until the 1820s when geologists in England uncovered more megalosaurus fossils, as well as other fossils. They correctly identified the remains as belonging to some giant extinct animal. Yeah, see, that's why dinosaurs, was there was such fascination with them at the turn of the 20th century, because yeah. it was a relatively new concept. Yeah. And then Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the, you know, his novel about the lost world, and then there was actually a, yeah. dinosaurs were in uh, silent films and, you know, stop yeah. action stuff. Yeah, it was a revelation. Yeah. There were huge animals, you know, roaming the earth. And put it in perspective, it means that George Washington and most of our founding fathers uh, didn't know anything about dinosaurs and pretty much believed that an ancient race of that giants. An, uh, <laughs> Human giants roam the earth. You know, it's funny, when you think about it, I bet, as there was in all kinds of uh, uh, nude scientific discoveries, there were religious controversies about, oh, what's yeah. this? This isn't in the Bible. Yeah. This can't be true. Yeah. You know, there's all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marshall. Smith. We're back. back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We do this show every week for the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin, which has one of the only internet radio stations in a library in the United States. And then after it goes out over the uh, library on Monday nights, it goes on podcast platforms all over the world. So speaking of all over the world, this is a couple who've been all over the world because they're both in the Air Force. Uh -huh. um, the lady's name is Major Lauren Olm, O-L-M-E. She's an Air Force pilot, an assistant director of operations, 77th Weapons Squadron, a leader and a wife. And she's making history. Do you have any idea how she's making history? She's making history now? Yes, is she going to be the first woman to do one of those private astronaut things? No. Yeah, I don't know what. She is making history as one of the first service members to fly a supersonic aircraft while pregnant. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that? <laughs> no, I cannot. Baby due this year. Expect to be one of the first babies in the Department of Defense to clock 9.2 hours in a supersonic aircraft. Wow. She flies the supersonic B-1 Lancer plane. She continued flying into her second trimester at 22 weeks with support from her medical team and her husband, Major Mark Ohm, who's also in the Air Force. So they're both majors, they're both Air Force pilots, and she has been flying while pregnant. Now, that's a major deal. That is it? a major deal by a major <laughs> in the right. Air Force. That's right. Okay. I thought that was fun. Now I have a question for you, Bob, from a listener, Ginny Ussel, in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, great. Okay, ready? Okay. She wanted me to ask you. This came on our website then. Yeah. Okay. Which group, which wrote and performed songs from the 1950s on, is tied with the Beatles for the most consecutive number one singles on the Billboard charts? Wow. That group from the late 1950s on okay, tied no. with the Beatles. Wow, that's a good question. Yeah. And they're tied with the Beatles on the most consecutive number one hits? Is that what she said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, my goodness. Now, that that's a puzzle for me. Good. Thank you, Ginny. <laughs> well, wait a minute. What's the answer? Don't we want to know the answer? Uh, no, I'm just thinking. Is this another pop? It's another pop yeah, group. Yeah, certainly one you know. Okay. We all know them. Are they, were they a Motown group or something like that? No. Okay, um, let's see. Far from Motown, they were... Not the Beach Boys. No. Okay, who? Bee Gees, Disco. Oh, no kidding. Yep, and they had six songs. Can you name any of them? Oh, yeah, sure. That were consecutively number one. Well, they had all those hits during yeah. the disco era. That's yeah. what they were. Yeah, but these were all in a row. Okay, what were they? How Deep Is Your Love. Oh, yeah. Night Fever, mm-hmm. Staying Alive, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, Jive Talking, and Too Much Heaven. Those are all such great songs. I don't know the last two. Jive Talking. Jive Talking. I don't know that. What's Too Much Heaven? Oh, you know it. It it has a little thing in there in the middle. It goes. Okay. All right. Okay. Wow. So uh, the question again, read the question again. Okay. Which group? which wrote and performed songs from the 1950s on, is tied with the Beatles for the most consecutive number one singles on the Billboard charts. Well, that's the Bee Gees, all right. You know, I missed the word consecutive because that's what the key is here. Remember the Beatles had the number one through five or one through six positions on the Billboard charts back in the mid-60s? Well, that same thing happened in the mid-70s. It was Bee Gees, Bee Gees, Bee Gees, Bee Gees, because all of those movies came out, used their music. You know, that's funny. You said from the 50s on, and people say, I don't remember them, but that's because they were like from Australia at first, you know, and then they moved to England, and they were a little British pop duo, you know, uh-huh. at first. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I think it was only two of the brothers at first, and they did, there was like a mining disaster song that was big that they did in 1964. I remember that. And then they kind of disappeared to most people's minds, and then boom, in the 70s, man, they were there with all those disco songs, and and the late 60s, they had hits. It's yeah, those, amazing. Yeah, the, six the, in a row, number one. The Gibb brothers, Barry Gibb and the Gibb brothers. Mm-hmm. Well, that was good. Thanks, Jenny. That was a great question. And I love the way she couched that. They've been performing since the late 50s. Um, that's what threw me off. Yeah. I thought, well, who was that? You think of like the four aces yeah. or something. Uh, yeah. But it was accurate. Yeah. Okay, great, great uh, question. All right, Marsha, who was the first woman elected to Congress? And when was that? What state did she represent? First woman elected to First woman elected to Congress, when was that? And what state? 1960. No? 50s. No, long time before that. Oh, 30s? Was it like Mitchell? 1916. Oh, wow. Good. Where were some of the states that were the first to give women the vote? Because it was the frontier. I don't know about Wyoming was oh, the yeah, first. Oh, yeah, that, that one is, we know. Okay, so the first woman elected to Congress was from a nearby state, Montana. Her name was Jeanette Rankin. Mm-hmm. She became a member of the House of Representatives four years before women were given the right to vote. Isn't that unusual? <laughs> so four years before women were given the right to vote, a woman was elected In the House of Representatives, 1916. I didn't know much about her. I knew that she voted against going into World War II. That was a very controversial vote. She was the only congressperson to vote against America entering the war, but she was a big suffragette. I had no idea. Before being elected to Congress, she was field secretary for the National Association of Women Suffragettes and traveled to 15 states organizing women. And in 1914, she helped women get the vote in Montana. Then she ran for Congress. 
They helped elect her, and her first day in office, she introduced the amendment that ultimately gave women the right to vote in 1920. So she is a giant and was an early pioneer of women's rights that people don't know about. Jeanette Rankin thought that was fantastic. Okay, yeah, I never even heard of her, which isn't good. Okay. Yeah, not good. You've heard of the term, Bob, spooning. You know what that means? Never heard of it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Uh, It's when you, uh, spooning is like uh, romancing. It's cuddling. Cuddling, okay, yeah. yeah. It's a cuddle when you're, you know, laying down, you cuddle together. As a spoon. Spoon laying in a spoon, yeah. Yeah, where did the, that term come from? The term came from silverware. The silverware company, (laughs) Rogers Silverware, came up with the spoon and then that, uh, I don't know the answer to that. Well, this is fun. The word originated in Wales, where young suitors were required to carve a wooden spoon while courting dad's daughter. Oh, really? (laughs) You carve a wooden spoon? Yes. If you're out with his daughter, the dad's daughter, it was presumably to keep you busy and you were too busy to cuddle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How are you coming on that spoon, young man? (laughs) That's what it was. Oh, my God. they had to carve a spoon what when they went out with your daughter. Custom. That's in Wales, but the, the I could see, you know, fixing a tire in the car or something. But you got to cuddle. <laughs> now you want to cuddle? No, you got a spoon. Got to fix it. And so, then when you're done with the spoon, you can cuddle with my daughter. And that's where the term spooning I'll came be, from. I had no idea. The nearby Scots might have considered adopting this custom after an 1868 study <laughs> revealed that 90 percent. Of yes. Scottish brides were pregnant on the day of their weddings. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. See, they didn't have spooning over there. Something so. in the water there. Yeah. yeah. 90%. Oh, my God. That's, that, that's, wow, that's interesting. Yes, it is. Okay. Remember the slow dance of our era, Procol Harum's Whiter Shade of Pale? Remember that song? Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, the man who wrote the lyrics for that recently died, Keith Reed. He was the lyricist for Procol Harum. Now, he was 76. He was a founding member of the band. He never performed with the band. He wrote lyrics, only lyrics, not the music, so he always handed off the words to musicians in the band, Uh just like Bernie Taupin has done for Elton John's songs all these years. But he toured with the group. He was always with them. And they asked him once, well, why do you tour? Why do you go tour? Uh He says, can you imagine a playwright not being there the night his play Uh, opens? So he went on every tour they went, and he said, plus, being in a hotel room helps me write. So he wrote songs whenever he went on tour with them. And after that, after that group, uh, he went on and he wrote songs for an amazing number of people, Annie Lennox, Willie Nelson, and Hart. Now, there's a strange combination. (laughs) I'll say. I'll say. Yeah. So Uh, uh, Keith Reed, Whiter Shade of Pale. We skipped the light fandango, turned cartwheels, crossed the floor. That was the first words to that song. That's sort of like when you and I met. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All righty. How much seawater does it take to produce three and a half pounds of salt? You're talking about sea salt. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, salt that's kind of wrung from the water of the Mm -hmm. sea. And you want three and a half pounds of it. How much seawater do you go out and get? I'll bet it's a lot. I'll bet you have to go after... Hundreds and hundreds of gallons. Yeah. How many? Five gallons. Only five gallons? That's it. Five gallons of water gives you how many pounds? Three and a half pounds of salt. My God. And and since the Dead Sea produces 10 times the amount of salt, you'll get over 30 pounds of salt in five gallons. I had no idea it was that much salt. That salinity was that extreme. Yeah. Wow. I found that amazing. It is amazing. Yes. Okay. Ever since Woody Allen came on the scene, people have talked about going to analysts, being an analysis, talking to psychologists. 
How long are people typically in analysis? In years. In years. <laughs> in years. All right. Well, that takes away that first thought. What did, you, what did you think it was? I thought uh, less than a year. One session and <laughs> that's it. No. All right. I'll say three years. According to a 2022 paper in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, a typical analysis lasts three to seven years. Oh, I thought that was interesting. Three to seven. That's yeah. a lot. But, you know. But it, it's very common now, much more than when we were young. Yeah, although I went to three during my lifetime. Well, that's, <laughs> well, that's, that's you. A, that makes really? sense. Yeah. Three, jeez. But none since you met me, right? That's right. <laughs> I've been very happy. You're right. Okay. <laughs> Less than 10,000 years ago, Bob, all humans had the same color eyes. Really? Yeah. And how do they know this? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> okay. It's kind of important to know, isn't it? Okay. What color was it? <laughs> Well, it wasn't blue, was it? Were they brown? Yes. No kidding. Yeah, and that's according to research published by the University of Copenhagen. All humans had brown eyes until someone between 6,000 and 10,000 years ago. That's when a genetic mutation created the first blue-eyed individual. Wow. So everybody was brown until then. That's interesting. Yeah, I had no idea. I wonder if it was meant to be. Everybody was supposed to have brown it, eyes. How did they know that a mutation took place well, 10,000 years ago? Well, they found it probably in some genetic material or something. I don't know. N nowadays, 70 to 79% of the world's population has brown eyes. I, I didn't know that. 8 to 10% have baby blues. And approximately 5%, this is us, 5% have hazel or amber. Wow. And just 2%, we've had this question, is green. So we're in the 95th percentile then. We, in everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Marcia. In 1812, what happened to a major river in the United States? It changed course. What do you mean by that? It went from... South to north or yes, vice? Yes, it flowed backwards. And what was that? Mississippi? That was the Mississippi River. Yeah, it ah. was on at least three occasions in the winter of 1811 and 1812. To be exact, December 16, 1811, January 23rd, and February 7th, 1812. <laughs> for, for about two months, the United States experienced a series of the greatest earthquakes in history. And the quake had an intensity of 10 on the Richter scale. Oh, my. Top of the earthquake scale and struck in the Midwest. It was, what year was that? It was 1812. It was centered in New Madrid, Missouri. That's where the New Madrid Fault is now. Uh -huh. Trees split in two. Lake bottoms raised 15 feet. Streams and rivers. Both the Mississippi and the Ohio River flowed backwards. Flowed backwards. <laughs> that would freak you out, huh? All right. I'm going to finish up with a couple of quick quotes. This is from Bill Murray. Whatever you do, always give 100% unless you're donating blood. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. This is simple, simple, but simple, profoundly true. Precise and absolutely <laughs> true, yes. And here's one we don't know who said it first. Okay. If you are the smartest person in the room, then you are in the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the club you don't want to belong to. That's right. That's oh, right. Oh, that's so funny. Someone said that was Confucius, but uh, I don't think uh, no. smartest person in the room is a phrase that was used no, back then. No, I don't think so, that's but it's, a, it's funny. Yeah. You're in the wrong room. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you're not in the wrong room. No. You're in the off-ramp room, and we hope you've enjoyed our show, and we'll tune in again 
next time when we come back with more. Again, like Ginny Ussel did from Louisville, Kentucky, you can go to our website, theofframp.show, and give us a question to ask one another, and uh, we will mention you on the air, and we'll uh, we'll try to answer it. I, we did that one. That was a good <laughs> I, one today. I stumped him. Yes, you did. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.